0: Does it matter if the stories in the Bible really happened? Isn't the important thing the spiritual truth that's taught in them, regardless of whether they happened or not? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. In our podcast today, we'll see how it is really very important that these events took place as they're recorded in the Bible, as we look at the last days of Israel and what they teach us about truth, history, and the importance of obeying God. I do believe that God works in history and that our Bible is true history. It's not simply fanciful or inspiring stories. Many religions of the world have very fanciful stories, but they can't be backed up in reality. But our Bible is different, and I will be showing you some specific examples of it today. But first, let's answer the question, why is knowing what we study, true history, so important? Well, it's very important because, as I said a minute ago, the Christian faith is very different from many other religions and also from really unbiblical, post-Christian, post-biblical Christianity that a lot of people believe today. And what I mean by that is many religions today are primarily quote-unquote spiritual. You will hear people all the time say things like, well, I don't go to church or I don't do this or that, but I'm spiritual. And what they mean by that is they believe in some vaguely comforting god in lower case that doesn't really care how they live their daily lives just so long as they practice some very basic ethics and they think that upon death that this nice sort of big man upstairs or that's even politically incorrect today this this personage or whatever it is will welcome them into eternal bliss as they go through this tunnel of light or whatever sadly there's absolutely no support for these ideas other than people's own imaginations. The Christian faith, though, is very, very different. The Christian biblical faith is always very tangible and history-based, and we will talk about this a little bit more as we go along. But the basic Christian story is that God created a world and put humans into it. They were made of flesh and blood. He didn't just create some vague spiritual thing. Sin was a physical act. The first time humanity disobeyed God it was a physical act they took uh, the fruit of the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil they, they physically took it, they ate it and they were physically banished from the garden the penalty of death wasn't just spiritual they physically died Jesus came in the flesh he lived as a man and yet he was God, he was both God and man and the church struggled with this for a long time and there are still some groups today that say, well, he wasn't really a man, he just appeared to be that. No, he was real flesh and blood. And he promised that all who believed that he truly lived as a man, that he died on the cross and rose from the grave as a human being, that if you believe that, that you will be able to live forever with him in heaven in a physical body. The whole physicality, the reality of our faith is so important. Even Jesus' disciples, when he first rose from the dead, they, they thought maybe he was a ghost. And Jesus said to them, he said, I'm not a ghost touch me. I have flesh and blood. He ate with them. He talked with them. He was flesh and blood. And the thing that I'm trying to to get across here is how tangible our faith is. It isn't some sort of vague thing. And if that's true, then we should be able to have a basis for our faith in the tangible real world. Now, How do we then know that something is true? How do we know that anything is true? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a review from the Truth and History podcast series that I did earlier this year. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, please go back and listen to it, because I go into a lot more detail on what is truth and how we can trust the Bible, why we know that it is true in contrast with many other religions. But let me just review a little bit of it. First of all, truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is defined in this way in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It is a body of real things, events, and facts, the property of being in accord with fact or reality. In contrast, Norman Geisler, in one of his wonderful books on apologetics, defines falsehood in this way. Falsehood does not correspond. The intent behind the statement is irrelevant. If it lacks proper correspondence with reality, it is false. And so it doesn't matter how much you just feel certain things, or how emotionally invested you are in an idea, or, or any of that kind of thing. Either it corresponds to reality, or it does not. Well, how is it that we can know whether or not the Bible actually corresponds to reality? Now, there are different ways that apologists approach this. I happen to have spent a lot of my life studying history. I have a master's degree in church history, gone to seminary and all those sorts of things, but really focusing on history. And so I look at history as one of the best tools that we have and I think this is really foundational because I believe that for any religion to be true theologically it should also have a true historical basis now of course every religion you get to a point the Christian faith is is also this where it's more than just facts you have to have faith to literally put your trust in a God that you haven't seen no matter how good the evidence is but One of the things that I think is very, very important for us to consider is that that the historical facts of any religion should be true. They should correspond to reality. If a religion does not correspond to reality, then there is no basis for trusting the other things that are built on it. So, then we need to ask, does the Christian faith respond to historical reality? And the answer is an overwhelming yes. The Bible is full of statements that can be verified or denied, if they're not true, in history. Let me just read you two of them. One of them um we hear this a lot in the Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is in Luke two one. But then one that maybe you're not quite as familiar with, in Kings 18.3, it says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Well, if our Bible corresponds to true history, can we expect that these facts actually, or these verses correspond to historical fact, and they do. First of all, on Caesar, we know that he lived, we know, we have many, many records in secular history that show us that he lived at this time that he took a census. That is not disputed by anyone, so that's just one of them. But then, on the whole thing with Sennachera, well, who in the world was he? Well, we will be talking about him more in some of our coming lessons, but he was an Assyrian general and one of the things that was fascinating about them and I will get to this in much much more detail in in just a few minutes but they recorded every single thing they did just in great detail and on a, a piece that's called Sennacherib's Prism. It's this, um, I think, hexagonal shape that has little tiny cuneiform writing on it. It actually says, um, As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns, taken in the battle with my battering rams. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. Basically stating exactly the same thing that the bible talks about. So this is these are just two examples but really very useful ones that show us how the bible is based on true history. Now let me talk just a little bit more though about the historical basis for the Assyrian Empire because they will figure very largely in what we're going to be talking about as we continue through our chronological reading of the Bible. Now for literally thousands of years people doubted that Assyria was even a reality. After the Babylonians destroyed it, shortly after where we're at in our our Bible reading, I mean, they completely destroyed it. They, uh, they burnt the city, which is an important thing, we'll get to that in a little bit, and literally uh, covered it over. And so there were no ruins of it. People didn't know where it was. But then, in the 1940s, they started realizing that there was probably something there. And in 1945, a young British diplomat, Henry Austin Laird, explored the ruins. Now, one of the things uh, that I was reading about, it said that he did not use modern... modern archaeological methods. His stated goal was simply to obtain the largest possible number of well-preserved objects of art at the least possible outlay of time and money. So he just went in there and with brute force he uncovered all of these things and shipped the majority of them back to England where they're in the British Museum. But we have these extraordinary, extraordinary pieces that tell us all about um, the Assyrian Empire. Now One of the most interesting things that he discovered in a a particular mound, I can't quite say it, Kniegik or something like that. Anyway, Laird discovered in in 1849 the Lost Palace of Sennacherib with its 71 rooms and colossal reliefs on the wall, these artistic reliefs on the wall, just phenomenal things. He also very interesting, unearthed the palace and famous library of Ashurbanipal with 22,000 cuneiform clay tablets. Now, cuneiform had been translated a long time prior to this. Scientists and archaeologists knew how to read it, scholars, and it's in these clay tablets that we have the Epic of Gilgamesh, we have the Code of Hammurabi, and we have thousands and thousands more. And I won't go into great detail, but it's just fascinating. You can look this up online on any sort of secular thing all of these clay tablets and and it's really interesting Uh, there are many pictures of them online there's small ones that are about the size of your thumb little tiny ones um, larger ones that would be the size maybe of a paperback book to these stele which were these huge pillars that they would maybe have the face of a person on the top of it or a scene on the top and then the entire rest of it again little tiny cuneiform writing just lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of it but they re recorded absolutely everything that they did and there are some wonderful online resources. One of the um really best ones, and one that I would highly recommend. It's a, uh, a website, bible.ca, and on it, the um, author of that website goes through and pulls out the different cuneiform tablets and stele and all that, and just lines them up exactly with different events that happened during this time in the Bible. And it's fascinating, because to the smallest detail about how the, the Israelites turned to Egypt for help or they did this or they did that and the different generals and the battles that they fought. It's all verified in these secular findings. So now that we know that we can trust the biblical story, let me go back to the Bible and let's look at 2 Kings 17 because this is the passage that details the fall of Israel and why it happened. Now I'm going to be reading the first few passages out of the message translation and I'm going to read the different passages and then comment on them. In 2 Kings 17, uh, it starts out by saying, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel. He ruled in Samaria for nine years. As far as God was concerned, he lived a bad life, but not nearly as bad as the kings who preceded him. Then Shalemassar of Assyria attacked. Hosea was already a puppet of the Assyrian king and regularly sent him tribute, but Shalomassar discovered that Hosea had been operating as a traitor behind his back, having worked out a deal with King So of Egypt. And again, it's, it's very interesting because this whole situation, again, is detailed in the Assyrian tablets. Now one of the things I just want to comment on about the Assyrians, they didn't really like to conquer just for the sake of conquering. That wasn't what they were into. What they wanted was money. It was very much a show me the money. They just wanted tribute. If you paid them tribute, they were happy. They left you alone. And that's why you see numerous times in the Old Testament, it'll talk about different kings or rulers. They stripped out all the gold of the temple or they took all this and they gave it um, to this conquering group and then they, they went away. That's all they wanted. That's really all they wanted. But Hosea, he'd been holding back. And it goes on to say, adding insult to injury, Hosea was way behind on his annual payments of tribute to Assyria. So the king of Assyria arrested him and threw him in prison, then proceeded to invade the entire country. He attacked Samaria and threw up a siege against it. The siege lasted three years. In the ninth year of Hosea's reign, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and took the people into exile in Assyria. He relocated them in Halah in Gozan, along the Harbour River, and in the towns of the Medes." Now, what, um, what the Assyrians also did, and this was their stated policy, is they would take people that they had conquered and yes, they did uh, kill and torture leaders and people that, who were in charge of things. But the majority of the people, it's interesting, the archaeological records show that they actually treated them quite well. And what they did well, I mean as well as could be expected back in that kind of day, where they would actually deport them to cities scattered around their empire. Now the reason that they did that is they made all of these different cities on the far edges of the empire and really everywhere, a mixture of people from many different nations. And the reason that they did that is they thought that if there was no one national entity that was strong enough, then they wouldn't rebel against Assyria. And that was true. That worked out really well. It said actually the deportations were not cruel. They kept them fed. They, um, you know, were decent to them. And they kept families together. Um, They would also decide that certain craftsmen had to go to this area or maybe Maybe you know they needed farmers in this area, and it was a very logically thought-out kind of thing. Now, one little parenthesis here—I I don't think I've done this lesson. Um, I have a, a really interesting lesson about that. I talk about that um, with Christmas time, and uh, I know you're thinking, "What in the world does Christmas have to do with this?" But what's very interesting is these Jews that were scattered throughout the empire. All of these Jews set up in wherever they were. You know, if there were ten Jews, that was called a minyam. They would then have a, 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 the start of the synagogue system. They would get together. They would go over the scriptures, whatever they had, and they would worship the one true God. And you, this was the start of all these little Jewish settlements over the entire empire. And just to look ahead, and I'm condensing what's really a wonderful story, you have the Assyrians scattering Jews all over the empire. Then when Alexander the Great came in and conquered this whole area, he taught all of the people that he conquered, including these Jews that have been scattered here and there, Greek. When, um, after Alexander died, and the Jews no longer actually have the scriptures in their native Hebrew because they were all speaking Aramaic, which was the language of the Assyrians. The, uh, the ruler in Egypt at that time, Ptolemy Philadelphus, was the ruler who was in charge of having the Septuagint translate translation of the old testament the hebrew bible into greek and this was then spread throughout the empire so you have jews living all over the empire they are now all speaking the same language which happens to be the koine greek which becomes the language of course of palestine and the entire roman world and the romans of course they joined all of the parts of their empire with the famous Roman roads that tied all of these cities, even to the farthest reaches together. Then, in the fullness of time, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, grows up, dies on the cross, is risen from the dead, and he commissions his people to go out and preach the gospel. A man named Paul takes up the charge, and he travels on these Roman roads to all of these cities, these different places. And where is the first place that he goes? He goes into the Jewish synagogues. Some of them had been there since the time of the Assyrians. They all are still studying their Bible. He speaks to them in Greek. He's able to read the Bible in Greek. He's able to preach the gospel. So just jumping back to our time in Assyria, who would have known that when the Assyrians came and scattered, the Jews, throughout all of their empire, how God would eventually use it as a launching pad to preach the gospel in every part of the empire during that time. Well, let me jump back to our story back in the Old Testament. Of course, they didn't know that then, and it was pretty tough then. And um, chapter 17 goes on in, in verse 7 to talk about why God punished them in this way. And it says, "...the exile came about because of sin." The children of Israel sinned against God their God who had delivered them from Egypt and the brutal oppression of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They took up with other gods, fell in with the ways of the life of the pagan nations God had chased off, and went along with whatever their kings did. They did all kinds of things on the sly, things offensive to God. They openly and shamelessly built local sex and religion shrines at every available site. They set up their sex and religion symbols practically at every crossroads. Everywhere you looked, there was smoke from their pagan offerings to deities the identical offerings that had gotten the pagan nations off into exile. They accumulated a long list of evil actions, and God was fed up. Fed up with their persistent worship of gods carved out of dead wood or shaped out of clay, even though God had plainly said, Don't do this ever. God didn't, of course, give up on him. It goes on to say, God had clearly taken a stand against Israel and Judah through countless holy prophets and seers who time and time again said, Turn away from your evil way of life. Do what I tell you. Do what I've been telling you when I gave your ancestors the law and which I've kept reminding you of ever since through my servants, the prophets. But the result They would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless That is such a powerful statement. Let me read it again. It's 2 Kings 7.15, and it says, They followed worthless idols, and themselves became worthless. We become like what we love. So we need to be very, very careful. What we love, what consumes our time, what consumes our interest, because we will become like it. Then their sins are detailed. He goes on and, and he talks about how they, they just kept doing all of these terrible things. And one of the culminations, of course, was that they sacrificed, they even sacrificed their children in the fire to the pagan gods. And this is one of the things, remember, that caused the inhabitants of the land to be destroyed when Israel first came out of Egypt. And here they were, returning to this horrible, horrible sin. Well, then what happened after they were taken out of the land, it's it's rather interesting, is the king of Assyria, as he did with the other things, is it, it goes on in verse 24 where it says, "...the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthoth, Ava, Hamath, and the Sepharim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns." But God's demands don't change. Whoever you are, you know, you live in my land, you're supposed to worship the Lord. And it goes on to say, when they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So the Lord sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria. The people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of the country requires. He sent lions among them which are killing him off, because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the god of the land requires. So, one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Well, hopefully some of them obeyed, but it goes on to say, Nevertheless... Each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they were settled and set them up in the shrines of the people of Samaria that the people of Samaria had made on the high places. The ones God had cleaned out, there they built them right back up again. The people from Babylon made Benoth, those from Kahuth made Nergal, those from Hamath made Ashama, the Avite. The Avites made Nizpah and Tarbek, and then it goes on and on. Um, and sadly, the, they um, reinstituted the whole thing of burning their children in the fire, which was so absolutely horrible. It goes on to say, They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines of the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also... Serve their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they'd been brought. They would not listen, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did." Well, of course, the challenge to us, even in reading this, and we can look down on them, but we have to look at ourselves and say, do we worship God only? Is that the sole source and focus of our worship? Or are there other things that also hold a high place in our hearts? Um, You know, hobbies, pride, money, status, our job, our family, our children. You know, whatever it might be, God says, you know, you're supposed to worship me and me alone. And so we can't look down on them without taking time to evaluate ourselves. And then, of course beyond uh, the personal application. This is the origin of the hostility between the Jews and Samaritans. These were the people that lived in Samaria during the time of Jesus. And this is why so many of the Jews just hated them. And it was really sad. I mean, they were there in many ways their brothers. and, And, you know, they should have been trying to convince them of the importance of of worshiping the one true God. But again, they looked down on them. They despised them. They were, they were half-breeds. Their religion wasn't pure. Their bloodline wasn't pure. And we know how during Jesus' time, people would go to great lengths to walk around Samaria. But Jesus didn't. And one day, a new prophet came up. And, of course, that was Jesus. And he not only went through Samaria, walked right through it, didn't walk around it, but he used a Samaritan to illustrate the greatest command. Remember, God had said, you know, hero Israel, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then when Jesus was challenged about, well, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Jesus tells the story of how a man was beaten up left on the side of the road. A priest and Levi both see him there, but they walk by. And then Jesus says one of the most shocking things, and I hope this history puts it a little bit more um, sort of in context, where Jesus then says, but then a Samaritan came by. And he took the man, he put him on his donkey, he bandages his wounds, he washes him, he takes him to an inn and he says to the innkeeper, you know, take care of this man, I'm going to pay you for it, I'll come back and check on him. And that would have been so absolutely and utterly and astoundingly shocking to the Jews of his day. And not only did Jesus tell that story, but then as I said, he would, inst- when going from the north of Judea down to the south, he'd go right through Samaria. And one day he w- he stopped there by a well and a woman said, uh, his disciples went to get food and he was there alone and she said, Sir, do you, do you have something to get into the well with? And do you have a way to get a drink of water? And he said, if you knew who you were asking, you would be asking me for a drink. And she goes, you don't have anything to draw with. And um, Jesus says, well, you know, somewhere in the conversation, he says, why don't you um, go in and get your husband? And she's kind of mumbling around. And he goes, I know, you It's you actually have had seven husbands and the one you're with and your husband now. And so she says to him, I see you're a prophet. <laughs> and uh, they have this this wonderful exchange and... Um, you know finally she realizes that she's speaking to the messiah and she runs back into the city and she says let i've there a man's out there and you know uh, he's he told me everything i ever did you've got to come and talk to him and it said jesus spent several days there in the city and his conversation with his samaritan this despised woman this despised group of people we we're, we're going to see samaritans in heaven because jesus took the time to go through this country, this land, to interact with people that nobody else wanted to have anyone to do with. So, just some final applications. God's word is based on true history, and it can always be trusted. Israel sinned, the Samaritans sinned, but God doesn't give up on his people. Jesus stopped by, and he changed everything. And so no matter what our history, no matter what your history might be, Jesus can use us to bring his message of salvation to our world. That Samaritan woman found living water, and she was never thirsty again. And Jesus wants to do that for each of us. Whatever your hunger, whatever your past, whatever you're thirsty for, believe Jesus when he said, Whoever drinks the water I give him, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format at www.bible805.com and do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any in this series of going through the Bible. We're ready to get into some really exciting things on Isaiah and some of the later prophets that I think you'll find not only interesting from a historical viewpoint, but very encouraging to your life today. Until next time. I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.